Good morning. morning. Glad to be back. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back here. Um, Aaron read the passage about the manna, but he didn't tell you. He didn't explain anything. He just read it to you, which is good. But uh, he didn't tell you how it got its name. This wafer. It, It means what is it? And when they picked it up, they looked at it and they went, man up. Open your Bibles to Psalm 25, please, or scroll in your Bibles. We're, we've gone full circle. You can scroll again. Let's go. Psalm 25, navigate into your Bibles, however you get there. The original commandments were written on a tablet. You can have it on your tablet now, so... We truly have gone full circle. There have been some surprising defections from the Christian faith in the last several years. Just last year, leader of a strong Christian university campus had decided that he no longer believed that Jesus was divine. He said he believes that Jesus was merely a good man and a blessed teacher, but not the Son of God. Though he still claims to be a Christian, he obviously cannot be. According to 1 John chapter 4, unless you confess Jesus is from God, you cannot be saved. So his denial of the divinity of Christ is enough to show that he's not saved. Among the most prominent recent defections from the faith was that of Joshua Harris. Most of you probably are familiar with that. Harris rose to prominence in Christian circles when he published the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. That book almost single-handedly began the modern courtship movement. Just this last July, he announced that he and his wife were divorcing. And a few weeks ago, he stated that he no longer considers himself to be a Christian at all. And he apologized for many of the things that he preached and the things that he had written over the years. Some of you know of other defections from the faith that are far more closer to home. Some of these defections, it seems, are the result of difficulty in in their lives. Uh, Maybe it's a a physical pain, emotional pain, uh, some kind of tragedy and they wonder how God could allow such suffering. They wonder, they look at the world and they look at their own suffering and they wonder, how can this be possible? How can God, if He is an all-powerful, all-loving God, allow such things to take place? Some are struggling with reoccurring sin and they wonder the same thing. They've asked God to take away that sin and Yet they still struggle with it. So they begin to question God's power. They question God's character. And that has led many to the point of questioning God's existence. Just because they don't understand how God can allow them to struggle or suffer or experience intense emotional or physical pain, they have determined in their mind that God must not be all-powerful or all-loving or doesn't even exist. Rather than admitting that they just don't understand, they just don't understand of how God does what He does or why God does what He does. They seek for reasons, and when they can't find the reasons that satisfy themselves, they begin to assume that everything they had believed all along was wrong. Much of the problem is the result of that false belief that being a Christian means nothing bad will ever happen. Being a Christian means that I will have a drama-free life. You know, Paul wrote these famous words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice and he later wrote and I, in the same letter, and I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 
When Paul wrote those words, he was chained to a Roman guard in a Roman prison waiting Nero's decision about his fate. Paul's contentment was not based on his circumstances. Men like John Huss, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, Thomas Cramner, and more than 280 other people were burned at the stake for their faith. Their faith was not based on their comfort level. And their joy was not independent, or their their joy was independent of their circumstances. Question about God's plans and purposes are nothing new. Doubts about what God is doing or even if He exists is not something that even Christians are immune to. John the Baptist was standing looking at Jesus walking and turned to Andrew and John who were the followers of John the Baptist at the time and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as men began to leave John's side and follow Jesus, one of John's disciples complained about that. And John said, no, 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 he must increase, I must decrease. Not too long afterward, John was thrown into prison by Herod. And while there, John began to wonder, is Jesus the Messiah? So he sent his own disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the expected one or is there another? John Mark had gone on a missions trip with Paul and Barnabas and about halfway through the trip he decided, this isn't for me. And he left. Defections from the faith are not unheard of. Doubts are not unheard of. Defections aren't unheard of. Paul speaks of several people who have abandoned the faith. Men like Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, Demas, and other unnamed people who had gone astray from the faith. Were these defectors ever truly saved? Well, John makes an awful strong statement in 1 John 2.19 when he writes, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. The possibilities are that they were fakers all along. Knew that they weren't believers all along. They were just pretending. Or they were the seeds that fell among the thorns. They heard the gospel, they made some mental assent to its veracity, and they they tried in their flesh to embrace Christianity, and then the, the concerns and the pressure, the things of the world choked them out. Or their seed that fell among the stones, and the same thing, they made a mental assent. And then as the persecution ramped up, they said, no, this isn't for me. And they walked away from the faith. The other possibility that they are, and we hope, in in a moment of rebellion. We hope it's a moment of weakness in their faith, that they're they're having a crisis, struggling. Have you ever struggled? In your faith? You ever struggle to remember that that God loves you and cares about you in the middle of the struggle? You ever been concerned that you might one day walk away from the faith? Paul's desire was to finish well. And the older I get, and and Old age and retirement is no longer just on the horizon. The more I think I want to finish well. I want to finish well. We've seen too many people fall. This psalm, Psalm 25, is a wonderful source of encouragement 
to keep our eyes on the Lord in the midst of struggle. The psalm begins with a plea for the assurance with God and ends for a plea of God's care and in between the reason to stay strong in the faith. In the end, David shows us that assurance of God's care comes from knowing God's character. Assurance of God's care comes from knowing God's character. The psalm is written in five stanzas. We'll follow the same outline. The first is the first three verses. It is the plea to have assurance with God. The plea to have assurance with God. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. He begins, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The picture is that of the the hands raised towards the heavens in prayer. That was a a common uh, posture for people in, in David's day to pray with their arms raised above their heads as if they are lifting their prayers to heaven. David is here saying, I lift my soul to heaven. The idea is that he is handing God his very soul. And the soul is all that he is. It's, it's his true self. It's his heart. It's everything that he is. And, and he's holding it up to the Lord. I'm lifting up my soul to you. God, I'm, I'm handing you my identity. I'm handing you my very life. It's completely up to you, God, to do with my life whatever it is that you want to do. I'm giving it to you. David, in essence, is saying, God, I'm placing all of my hope in uh, for my life in you and in you alone. I'm not placing my hope in my army. I'm not placing my hope in my strength, my hope in my military prowess, my hope in my wealth. My hope is in you, God, and you alone. Take my life. Do what you want. That's a terrifying prayer. I think if we're honest, we would say that is a scary prayer to pray. Because we never know what God will choose to do. He says in verse 2, Oh my God, in you I trust. He can hand his life over to God because he says, God, I trust you. In just two lines, David makes it clear that his entire life is bound up in his faith in God. God is not something that David thinks about on Sundays only and the rest of the week he handles it on his own. My entire life, God, is bound up in you. It's all in your hands. He's boxed up his life and he's presenting it to God as a living sacrifice. The next phrase in verse 2 is one I think many people have thought but few have ever Spoken out loud, he says, do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me, exult over me. When we use the word ashamed, we use it typically to say of of being embarrassed, looking foolish, being dishonored somehow. It's the idea that behind the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, when he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. So if you're embarrassed of me, Jesus is saying, I'll be embarrassed of you. It's the way that Paul uses it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. When we use the word embarrassed, we tend, tend to think of that embarrassment that comes to a teenager when their dad tries to act cooler than he really is. You know, like when a teenager watches their parents dance, it's that, that's what we usually think of in embarrassment. 
But that's not the way that David uses it here in Psalm 25. The idea behind the word that David is using is to be disappointed because you trusted in something that in the end proved to be unworthy of trust. It's the embarrassment of those who fell, who fell victim to a Ponzi scheme. It's the embarrassment of those who had all of their stock in Enron. Trusted in the wrong thing. So when David, look at, David says, do not let me be ashamed. In the end, don't, God, don't let it be that I was trusting in the wrong thing. This is not so much doubting God's ability as it is asking God for the assurance that the object of his faith is correct. David's not here asking for health or wealth or a drama-free life. He's thinking about his eternity. When it comes to the end of my life, God, don't let me be ashamed. Don't let me have trusted in the wrong thing. David wants to remain strong in the Lord. He wants to finish well. He wants to know that what he's trusting in is right. And he already does know it. Verse 3 begins with, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. He knows That those who have lifted up their soul to God will never be ashamed. God promised His people in Isaiah 49, 23, And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for Me will not be put to shame. Jesus promised in John 6, verses 39 and 40, This is the will of Him who sent Me, that all that He has given Me, I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. No need for shame there. No need for have trusted in the wrong thing. Those who truly trust in the Lord will not be ashamed, as opposed to the counter of that in the second part of verse 3. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Those whose lifestyle shows that they're not saved. Those will be ashamed. Those who are trusting in, in this case, in power. They'll be ashamed. Like the rich man in Luke 16. Who thought his wealth was the assurance of God's approval on his life. And he dies and he is surprised when he opens up his eyes and he's being tormented in hell. He's now ashamed because he's been trusting in the wrong thing his entire life. He's been trusting in his own wealth, thinking that was enough. That would, that's going to assure me a great eternity. And now it turns out not to be true. And his mind turns to his own brothers. They're going to suffer the same fate. They're going to be embarrassed one day if they don't turn to Christ. David pleads for assurance with God. That assurance comes when one knows God. That brings us to the second stanza, which is verses 4 through 7. The request to know the ways and experience the compassion of God. The request to know the ways and experience the compassion of God. Look at verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. If one is going to be strong in his or her faith, they must know something about the way God works. If we're going to be strong, if we're going to finish well, we must know something about how God does what He does. Otherwise, we begin to develop in our own mind and at what we think an abundant life looks like. 
And when it doesn't match up to our self-made definition, that's when we begin to doubt the power, the compassion, or the existence of God. This is probably one of the biggest problems with those who abandon the faith. They are ignorant of the way God works. And I use the word ignorant in its strictest sense. They, they don't understand the way God works. And because they don't understand, they question His power and they question His wisdom and His compassion and therefore His authority in their life. I fear, I fear many churchgoers have indirectly been Influenced by the word of faith movement. This health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Where we would reject such teaching as being accurate. Nevertheless, many Christians practically live it out that they think their life should be without trial. For many years, many Orthodox, otherwise Orthodox Christians unwittingly gave the false impression that the Christian life is one without trial. It happened in evangelism. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The implication being, if you want a peaceful, drama-free life, all you need to do is add Jesus. And we saw it through the 70s. And people... Adding Jesus to their life and it didn't change their life because they weren't really saved. And when their marriages fell apart or their children rebelled or they lost their jobs, there were massive defections from the faith because they were never saved to begin with. They didn't know anything about the way God works. Christians gave the wrong impression. David wants to know God's ways and his paths. He wants to understand how God works. Look at verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. He wants to know the God that has promised him life. He wants to know that the God who has made his covenant with him, he wants to know how he works. He wants to know what he's doing. He, he wants God to help him understand. So he can patiently wait for God to do his work. You see that at the end of verse 5? For you I wait all the day. To wait is to accept God's timing and therefore God's wisdom. Let me say that again. To wait is to accept God's timing and therefore God's wisdom. We know that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways. But sometimes when the trials or the struggles drag on, we can tend to think that God has forgotten all about us. And waiting on the Lord is difficult. But the more we know Him, the easier it becomes. But more often than not, We are more concerned with being removed from the trial rather than being refined by the trial. Verse 6. He says, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from of old. We're in need of God's compassion and His loving kindness, aren't we? If our faith was dependent upon our love for God rather than His love for us, it would always be a fragile faith. Fortunately, our faith isn't dependent upon our love for Him, but His love for us. So David says, remember your compassion, your loving kindness. They've been from of old. They've been around forever. 
Our faith is sustained by God's love for us. In fact, we couldn't love Him unless He first loved us. His prayer continues in verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. David asked that the Lord would remember him according to his loving kindness and not his sin, not his failures. God, remember me according to your character, not according to my character. We don't want the Lord to think of us according to our sin. Because they are many. They are terrible. They dishonor Him. But His love and His grace and His mercy caused Him to send His Son so that we can know the forgiveness of sins and they, those sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So David pleads with God, don't remember me according to my sin. God, remember me according to your character. You feel that way when you're in the midst of a trial? Struggle? You know, if I wasn't such a sinner, then this wouldn't be happening. Again, it's a misunderstanding of the way God works. Sometimes issues in our life are the result of sin. You go into a violent rage and attack somebody, you're going to reap jail. And it is a direct result of your sin. And there are other things that are a direct result of our sin, but not all the struggles that we have are a direct result of sin. And even those that are a direct result of sin are still used by God to refine us. Make us what he wants us to be. Thankfully, through Christ, we can be forgiven and God remembers our sins no more. Far away as the east is from the west. Yet we foolishly, many times, remember the things that God forgets. And then we want to remind him. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Philippians 3, 13 and 14, 12, 13, and 14. And Paul says, I don't count myself of apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. When Paul says forgetting what lies behind, I think he was including his own sin. I think he was including his own success as well, but I think specifically he's he was thinking about his own failures. That he refused to let his failures defeat him. Because those have been taken care of by God. Remember Wide World of Sports? Some of you do. Some of you just gave me a look like, what? Remember that horizon I was talking about earlier? Closer. Well, Wide World of Sports was a high, widely popular ABC sports show on the weekends, and it was hosted by Jim McKay. And Jim McKay said, I've, I've learned more from the, from the losers that we've had on our show than, we have, than I have the winners. Because when the losers take defeat and slam it to the ground and rise above it, that's where the lesson is. When you think of baseball and you think of Mickey Mantle, you think of great success as a ball player. You know he was a strikeout king? He struck out 1,710 times. That's not the times he popped out, flew out, grounded out, thrown out. He struck out 1,710 times. Why did he hit all the home runs? Because he kept coming to the plate. David says, God, don't remember me according to my failure. Remember me according to your character. David asks for assurance with God, and he, as he sees his enemies gather, and he remembers his own sins, and then he asks that 
He might understand the way God works. God, help me understand why these things, how you're using these problems. And the answers come in the very next stanza. It's verses 8 through 11. And here's the assertion of the character of God. The assertion of the character of God. He says in verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and He teaches the humble His way. All His paths, or all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For Your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. In verses 4, 5, and 6, David asks for three things. And the answers come in verses 8, 9, and 10. Look back at verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Then look at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. David's asking God, teach me, show me, instruct me. He does. Because why? He's good and upright. So He does instruct His people. Look at verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. That's the request. Look at verse 9. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. God, I I, I need you to lead me through this valley that I'm traveling through. He does that with the humble. Not with the one that is too proud to... Who thinks, I don't deserve this. This isn't what I signed up for. God, if you were really powerful and really loving, you wouldn't let me experience these things. Then look at the request in verse 6. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. And then verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. To those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Look at verse 10 again. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Well, if we went back just a couple of chapters to chapter 23. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness. Even the ones we don't like. Even the ones that if we could write the script, we would never write it that way. We would never take our lives through pain and misery and uncertainty. But all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness. All that He does is gracious and just and expresses His love and His faithfulness. That's why He can promise in Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love Him. Because all of His paths are loving kindness. His divine perfections are revealed For the sake of the sinner so that he might lead us his way. God did not graciously reveal our sinful condition. We would never cry out to him for mercy and grace and forgiveness. The mere contemplation of God's greatness is a reminder of how fall far we fall short verse 11 david's reminded again for your namesake O lord pardon my iniquity for it's great he's just talk about the goodness and the uprightness of god that, that he instructs the the sinner that he leads the humble in justice that he teaches that his paths are loving kindness and truth and he when he as he thinks about the character of god and how god works in all of these things he's reminded again of how far short he falls god my sin is great i don't know for sure but perhaps 
David at that moment is thinking about his own doubts. As he looks at the enemy gathering on the hills and he's afraid. He's tired. Maybe he's doubted God's goodness. Maybe he's doubted the compassion of God. Maybe he felt like he was the king. He did not deserve to be treated that way. Though our sin is great, God's forgiveness is even greater. I think David sees that as well. The fourth stanza, verses 12 through 15. The reward for those who fear God. The reward of those who fear God. Look at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and the descendants, his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. The one who seeks the Lord, the seeks the glory of God, the one who sees his own sinfulness will develop a holy fear of the Lord. We've been we've had such a perversion invade Christianity that is given this theology that God is your buddy. And he's just one of the good old boys. He's just like you. God is to be feared. Yes, he is loving and gracious and kind. But he's also to be feared. He who fears the Lord. Or who is he who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. If you truly fear the Lord, God will guide you and direct you the way He wants you to go. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs says, is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord are instructed by Him. Verse 12, verse 13. He says, His soul will abide in prosperity and His descendants will inherit the land. That was a specific promise for the nation of Israel. For us, the application is God keeps His promises. God fulfills what He says He's going to do. Like He did with the nation of Israel. God reveals His plans to those who fear Him. And specifically, the forgiveness that is only found in Christ. Those who trust in the Lord will inherit the land, not this land, but the promised land to come, the, the new heaven, the new earth. Verse 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And he will make them know His covenant. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him. David had earlier prayed, God, I want to know you. I want to understand you. Well, that comes with a healthy fear of the Lord. A right understanding of His character not only includes His love and His compassion, His grace and His mercy, but the fact that He is God. And He deserves our awe and our respect and our fear to the point that we fear sin. In verse 15, he says, My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes are continually toward the Lord. I'm always focusing on the things of God. In the midst of the trial, it doesn't matter. My eyes are focused on the Lord. Unlike Peter, who was got out of the boat in the middle of the waves and stood on the water, and when the waves came, he 
He panicked and he looked at the waves and he began to sink. If he would have kept his eyes on Christ, he wouldn't have sunk. We do the same thing. We can have all the great intentions of the world before we enter the trial. It's in the midst of it that we start to see the waves come and panic. Take our eyes off the Lord and cry out for Him to remove us from the trial. The promise is when you keep your eyes continually toward the Lord, He will pluck my feet out of the net. This is a picture of a of a trap set for an animal, specifically probably here a bird. He'll pluck my feet out of that. He'll keep me from the traps. Not keep you from the struggle. Not keep you from the trial. Not extract you from the trial. But keep you from being overwhelmed. Keep you from being entrapped by it. The last stanza. Verses 16 through 22 is the plea to be delivered by God. The plea to be delivered by God. He just said, God will pluck my feet out of the net. Then he says, verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. The first thing I want you to notice here is the troubles didn't simply go away. All of David's assurance of God's character, his plea at the beginning, his desire to know God, to understand what God is doing, all of that was not a means to remove the struggle. Because he's still struggling. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Why? For I am lonely and afflicted. And we think that living the Christian life, and if I just do the right thing, if I just read my Bible enough or pray enough or give enough or attend enough or share the gospel enough, then I will never experience these things. David is here saying that's not true. I'm lonely. I feel like I'm all by myself, God, and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of this distress. He's still affected. The assurance that God cares comes from knowing God's character. Not the removal from the problem. The assurance that God cares comes from knowing God's character. We sometimes get it mixed up in our mind and think the assurance that God cares is the removal from struggle. It's not. It's defaulting to the character of God in the middle of the struggle as He refines us and conforms us to the image of His Son. David can bring his troubles to the Lord with a full assurance that God's character means that God will always act for His own glory and show loving kindness to His children. The problems are when we start to define who God is apart from how God's Word defines who God is. 
And we start to think that God owes us something. Or we start to think that God, if He's really caring and loving, will never allow certain things to take place in our life. And when we are not focused on the character of God, rather we're focused on the circumstances of life, we will fail in the the struggle, in the trial. The assurance of God's care comes from knowing God's character. What was true for David personally was true for the nation of Israel corporately. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. David does ask God to extract him from the struggle. Verse 17, bring me out of my distresses. That's all predicated on everything else he's already prayed. God, help me know what you're doing. I mean, he's not saying, God, just let me stay in this struggle. Now, this is like a, this is great. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Now, we still want God to remove us. But as I mentioned, some of us are so quick that we want God to remove us before we've been refined. And that's not the way God works. We know we must choose which path we're going to walk down. We're going to walk down the path of the wicked or we're going to walk the path of the righteous. That was Psalm 1. We know we must choose, but... If we're not careful, we tend to think that once we make the choice to walk the path of the righteous, that that means that all will be well. This psalm helps us understand that the road of the righteous is not an easy road. The man who wrote this was the man after God's own heart. The road of the righteous is lined with enemies. It's lined with doubts. It's lined with frustrations. It's lined with memories of previous sin. It's also lined with the goodness and uprightness of God. And it's also lined with the promises that God will never leave you or forsake you and no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. And it's lined with the promises that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. It's lined with the assurance that God knows what He's doing. And everything is in His control. And He has a plan and a purpose for whatever it is that you're going through or will go through. The assurance of God's care comes from knowing God's character. If you know Christ you're going to have some hard times. It's the reality. You're going to experience heartbreak. You're going to experience frustration. You're going to experience trials because these are the things that God does in order to conform us to the image of His Son. And some of you are going to experience things that the rest of us will never experience. Does that mean God loves you less? God's care comes from knowing God's character. So always default to the character of God. And trust Him. Trust His character. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He'll make your path straight. If you're sitting out here and you don't know Christ... Well, you're going to experience some hard times too because we live in a sinful world. But the difference is it's not going to refine you. It's not going to make you more like Christ. You need Christ. And if you will... Understand the character of God, you will recognize like David did your own sin. 
Fortunately, God loves us so much He sent His Son to become sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ is offering to take your sin and in exchange give you His righteousness. You'll never find a better deal. If you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have to start there. And you need to do that today. You need to start today. You may say, well, Pastor, you didn't paint a very rosy picture of Christianity just now. You just told us it's going to be a struggle. Yep, that's right. Because that's the reality. But I'm not saved, so I have a good life on this earth. I'm saved, and I'm looking forward to my eternal home. My home in glory. Because this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasure, never mind. Some of you caught that, thank you. God's care comes from knowing God's character. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be able to know you, that you made it possible to, for us to know you through your Son. And that, Father, we can know your character and we can have that assurance of the fact that you're in control. That, Father, no matter what we experience, you have a plan and a purpose. And, Father, for that, we are so grateful. Father, I pray for your people, those who are in the midst of trials, that they would default to your character, that they would never forget that you are loving and kind and gracious and wise and all-powerful. And Father, your ways are right and perfect. Your choices are never wrong. Father, may they find assurance in that. Father, for those who are heading into a trial, whether they know it or not, I pray, Lord, that you would help them at this time of respite to learn your character. To ingrain deep in their minds, in their hearts, the fact that you are loving, kind. But you use trials and struggles, difficulties, to refine us, to conform us. And Father, may we be more concerned about being refined by the trial than we are being removed from the trial. But Lord, we may be more like Christ as a result. and You'll be glorified. You know every heart in the room. You know those who belong to you and those who don't. Father, we pray for those who do, that they would be found faithful. And those who don't, that they would come to saving faith. That you would open up their eyes to the truth of the gospel. They would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.